You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Hefei, Zoomin, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Long John Sterling, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. In late 1679, after their attack on Portobello and the departure of their French comrades, the amassed pirate fleet under Captains John Coxon, Richard Sawkins, Peter Harris, Bartholomew Sharp, and Edmund Cook was the largest assembled since Henry Morgan's raid on Panama. It included such illustrious names as William Dampier and Lionel Wafer, Both were natural scientists who intended to chronicle their expedition and would go on to be well-known names in the academic community. Basil Ringrose was a ship's doctor who would write the most in-depth account of the voyage. Captain Sharp and a man named John Cox, not to be confused with John Coxon, would also write accounts. All told, the fleet numbered seven vessels of consequence and over 350 men, This was an armada of English pirates that would make any Spanish colony in the West Indies, excepting probably Havana, would make them tremble in fear. For months, the assembled crews attacked half a dozen Spanish settlements. They commandeered over a dozen Spanish vessels of note and even more small boats. They stole several hundred thousand in Spanish gold and silver and gemstones and valuable commodities. However, After six months, the fleet was a shadow of its former self. Captain Peter Harris had been killed in the naval battle for Panama, along with two others. Their admiral, John Coxon, had fled in shame over his apparent cowardice before Panama. Fifty men left with him, along with their Kuna guides. Then a bark carrying fifteen men was lost at sea. Richard Sawkins was named their new admiral, but was almost immediately killed outside Puebla Nueva, along with two more men. In the wake of his death, 75 men abandoned the fleet to return home. Despite all that, though, the roving would be seen by anyone who looked at it as a resounding success. The men had plundered over a thousand pieces of eight each. That's enough to start a real life, to buy a piece of land and find a wife and have children and spend your days engaged in backbreaking labor. Or, more accurately, it was enough to gamble and drink and spend on women for months to come. Most sensible pirates would have turned back and enjoyed their winnings at this point, but the remaining men chose not to do so. Some feared that returning to the waters around Panama at this juncture would be dangerous, or marching across the Isthmus would be just as terrible the second time. Some were fueled by greed for more treasure, but most chose to stay because of their new admiral. Some out of loyalty towards him, but most, it appears, out of fear. This is episode 44, Refitting. There were only 146 men left in the fleet. Now, it hadn't been all losses. While they had returned most of the Spanish captives to their homes, they'd taken a few with them. First, there was that old and stout Spaniard, Don Francisco de Peralta, Taking Peralta hostage was probably a tactically smart move. They could take him ashore anywhere, and his status would assure that the pirates got a safe passage, or at least it would improve their chances if things got desperate. Plus, he was a South Sea Navy man. He knew these waters well, and 
If they could trust him, he would prove an invaluable resource as to the strength and the locations of Spanish settlements. Now, he was still a prisoner, at least according to Ringrose and Sharp and the letters of Spanish governors. And nothing I've read leads me to believe that it was willing complicity on his part. See, all throughout the Golden Age, pirates were well known for shanghaiing able sailors and forcing them to serve on their vessels. However, the English on this voyage write about Peralta in terms of the greatest admiration. According to at least their records, Peralta returned the sentiment towards the English, so even though he was a prisoner, it appears that he was treated well and usually complied with the pirates' requests. I mean, you can just kind of imagine that strange relationship though, right? 150 or so young Englishmen out for Spanish blood, but in their midst is this hard old Spanish sea dog. He knew his way around a ship, and probably he took this opportunity away from command to gamble with the men, to tell them stories about his days at sea, even potentially to tell them about his experiences fighting the English. You can even imagine that the quartermaster might have to break up a little gathering of men drinking and listening to Peralta. With his white curled mustache and a goatee, he would tell them stories about battles he'd seen and women he'd loved, of all the prizes taken and bitter defeats. It's not that he was doing anything wrong exactly, but every day he was doing a little more to win the crew over. And then there was a second Spanish captain, a man named Captain Juan. He was the man commanding the treasure galleon captured outside of Panama, carrying the 60,000 pieces of eight for the soldiers there. Ringrose writes of him, quote, This man had now promised to do great things for us by piloting and conducting us to several places of great riches. But more especially to Guayaquil, where he said we might lay down our silver and laid our vessels with gold. End quote. That's quite a promise. Promising that all of the silver they have captured will be worthless when compared to the gold they will find. But especially coming from a loyal Spanish naval captain. Certainly he wasn't planning on betraying the pirates who had killed his countrymen and raided their towns in league with their hated ancient enemy, the Kuna. I mean, not Captain Juan. There were others, though, including an elderly Moor. Now, this guy... I want this guy's story. Most of the pirates seemed to hold him in... Well, not esteem, but maybe more like awe. He was old, but he was hard-eyed, and he was dangerous. I like to picture him sharpening his scimitar on deck, although he probably wasn't allowed to keep one. But it's clear that most of the pirates were terrified of him, and yet, at the same time, drawn to him. What I want to know is just who he was, and how he got on board a Spanish ship in the New World. Now, they name him a Moor, and Ringrose says he's, quote, of that country. But it's difficult to tell exactly what country he means. Now, after the Reconquista, there was still a Moorish minority in Spain up until about 1609, but then Philip III expelled them. For this elderly Moor to be among that group would make him more than 71 years old, and that's nearly impossible to believe. The more likely answer is that he was North African, which means that he was probably from the Barbary Coast. Would that make this man a Barbary pirate? Was he one of those Muslim sea rovers that raided Portugal and Italy and Spain? Had this man sacked the Icelandic coast or maybe even Ireland? And how did he wind up on board a Spanish navy vessel to be taken prisoner by English pirates? Why would the Spanish suffer a Muslim man who was presumably their enemy on board one of their vessels in the New World? Unfortunately, our chroniclers don't tell us anything about him. But that's a story I need. Regardless, though, despite those few additions, 146 men wasn't enough to crew all of the ships they had. Sawkins' men had taken one of their galleons with them, but they still had three ships to crew and just not enough men to do so. So Bartholomew Sharp, the new admiral, rearranged the ships and the crews. He took command of the Trinity, La Santissima Trinidad. 
he took with him his most trusted cadre of men, including Basil Ringrose. Then they loaded gun after gun from the other two warships until she had a full complement. He took most of the powder and the shot, most of the pitch and the ropes and the sailcloth and the rum and the wine and the foodstuffs. And finally, he fully crewed the Trinity. He brought on board the best pilots and the best navigators, including Dampier. When he was done, the Trinity was a true powerhouse. She was fully gunned and fully manned by skilled pirates. She would be a real threat to any Spanish ship that she came upon. This was less of a pirate ship in a traditional sense and more of a floating fortress. And Sharp needed a fortress. They loaded the Trinity's holds, which were already nearly full with gold coins and silver bars and casks of indigo and spice. And then there was a second ship, the Mayflower, which was less impressive. She was loaded with a few extra guns to bolster her defenses, but mostly she carried less valuable cargo, nothing like the Trinity. But that was the point. See, the Mayflower was the ship taken after that disastrous raid on Pueblo Nueva. She wasn't one of the Spanish warships. See, warships are heavy. They're difficult to maneuver. The Mayflower was light and agile. Now, she wasn't built to stand her ground and fire away at the enemy, but rather to swoop in, strike quickly, and retreat. Were they to encounter any serious resistance from the Spanish, her purpose would have been to harry the enemy toward the Trinity. There, the enemy could be pummeled and finally boarded. Admiral Sharp put the Mayflower under command of Captain Edmund Cook. He was the last remaining captain of any real note on the voyage, and it made sense to give him command. The other two ships were emptied of anything of value, especially to men at sea. Casks for water, ironwork, replacement planks, anything they would need to stay afloat were taken off of those vessels, and those vessels were burned. Then Captain Sharp called all of the men together on board the Trinity. It was there they held council. They all listened to what the Spanish captives had to say, and they decided where to strike next. It was there that Captain Juan spoke up and suggested Guayaquil. Today, Guayaquil is one of the largest cities on the Pacific coast of South America, and it held that same distinction in 1680. It's in modern-day Ecuador, at the mouth of the Guayas River and the Gulf of Guayaquil. That river was used to carry cargo north, and the gulf provided a perfect defense from attack by sea. The city was large, it was rich, and it was well defended. When Captain Juan promised the men that they could trade up all their silver for gold, the men... Well, they ate it up. They whooped, and they hollered, and they voted their assent, almost unanimously. But some among them, those who might actually know a thing or two about the region, men like Dampier and Wafer, well, they voted against going, and were deeply troubled when the crew voted yes. You see, this was an incredibly stupid plan. It was precisely the kind of plan that John Coxon or Richard Sawkins would have nipped in the bud, and their men, who were older and more experienced pirates than Sharp's crew, well, I believe they would have voted no. But Sharp's men were younger, and they were more brash, as was Sharp himself. And remember, most of them had been absent when the more experienced captains attacked Panama. So these men wanted a taste of action. They wanted glory. They wanted to take a great city, but they were still a small crew. Less than 150 men. A small crew, though, had taken Panama, but that's because Panama was a shell of its former self. Morgan had taken the city 10 years ago with 2,000 men. Panama wasn't one of the great cities of the Spanish main anymore. But Guayaquil was. Now, it wasn't Havana or Lima, but it was close. And 146 men, even in the big bad ship they had, just couldn't take the city. Regardless, the men voted to do just that thing. First, though, they had some business to attend to. Guayaquil was far away, and they needed food and water. But more importantly, they needed to tend to their ships. See, every few months a wooden ship needed to be cleaned and have some maintenance done. Anything above board they could do at sea, but the hull was another matter. For example, whenever the ship took on cannon fire, it might result in some damaged planks or even potentially holes in the hull. 
You can plug the hole and patch it, but only from the inside. Any real consequential repair had to be done on land. Beyond that, most ships suffered from dry rot, which was caused by fungus, and regularly needed to be cleaned and repaired and sealed with tar. But there were other problems as well. A ship at sea picked up all sorts of life on the hull. There was bacteria, which could cause rot, and then there was algae. There were sponges, and there were mussels, and even crabs that enjoyed life on a ship's hull. But the main problem was barnacles. Barnacles are, if you're not familiar with them, well, they're a crustacean, kind of like a crab or a lobster. But rather than travel around the shallow ocean floor, they... Well, they send out larvae, which search for a host. When they've found a suitable location, and they might choose reefs or ships or even larger animals like sharks or whales, those larvae insert their head into the host and burrow into it with these tiny antennae that act kind of like roots. Then they mature into adults and grow legs, which catch any passing prey and bring it into their mouth. Barnacles are disgusting. They are freakish, parasitic little monsters that look like something out of a Lovecraft horror story. But pirates, and even more legitimate sailors, didn't clean them off because they were gross. Along with all that other sea life, barnacles taking root on the hull could cause serious damage, and it slowed the ship down. If it got serious enough, it could even compromise a ship's ability to catch a decent breeze. And our pirates had been at sea for several weeks, and who knows when the last time this Spanish vessel had been cleaned. So, the pirates needed to clean the ship. Now, typically, they would just careen the vessels. That's the process of running a ship aground at high tide. That way, when the tide went out, she would just sort of be sitting on the beach. They'd tie ropes to the masts and shift all of the cargo to the landward side of the ship. Then they'd pull the ship over and tie those ropes to nearby trees to anchor her in place while the cleaning took place. Now, usually, they'd be careening more typical pirate ships, that is, ships like barks or sloops, but the Trinity was another story. It was a huge Spanish warship. Typically, ships of her size were sent to dry dock for maintenance. Now, it's not like the pirates couldn't careen a ship as large as the Trinity, but it would take time. It would take longer than they cared to wait on the coast in territorial Spanish waters after attacking settlements nearby. What they needed was a secluded beach on which to careen their vessels. Now in Jamaica, or later on in the Bahamas, there were untold numbers of secluded beaches that were free from prying eyes. But in the Southern Ocean, they didn't know of any. And neither did the Spanish captives. At least, the Spaniards among them claimed that godly, law-abiding men such as themselves had no need to know of such places. But there was one place that the pirate crew knew about. Our chroniclers called it, at first, the Turtle Islands, but we know of them today as the Galapagos. It would be perfect. So for now, Guayaquil could wait. And right here, well... The account of the voyage gets incredibly boring. See, the accounts we have of this voyage aren't narratives. They're essentially journals. They're journals that, yeah, they were intended for publication, but still just journals. Now, I am incredibly grateful that we have them. It's so rare to actually have accounts of these voyages from the pirates that lived them. But that said... This chapter of the journals of Basil Ringrose and Bartholomew Sharp and all the rest are just, just so dull. You see, they got caught quite literally in the doldrums. They were almost exactly at the equator, and at certain times of year in the equatorial regions of the Atlantic and the Pacific, well, they experience a period of low pressure that results in a calm. There just weren't any winds. They'd set out on June 6th under an easy but steady southwestern wind, but about noon it just died. So there they sat, trying to catch a breeze. June 7th was no different. The buccaneers ate meals of turtle and hard bread, and they waited. June 8th came and went. June 9th, no change. Come the 10th, they had some, quote, small and variable winds, end quote, but... Those winds were pushing the ships southeast, and they were trying to get to the Galapagos in the west. 
Then a sea current caught them and pushed them even further east. This actually proved to be a stroke of luck as it took them to a spot in the ocean that was teeming with life. They were able to send out boats and catch turtles and albacore and dolphin and something called old wives. In an afternoon they caught enough to fill their larders, but still they couldn't make any headway. And on the 11th they were still essentially idle. Now tensions were building on board the two ships. The men were very much aware that every day they spent unmoving at sea, Spanish horses were carrying word of their presence in the South Seas further and further along the coast. In all likelihood, word had already traveled further south than they had come. On the 12th, one of their Spanish prisoners finally spoke up. It was Captain Juan, that uh, treasure ship captain. Now, of course, he knew about the doldrums. He'd been sailing in these waters for years, and it took him an entire week to inform the pirates of their mistake. That was just long enough to allow the Spanish to spread word of the pirates, but not so long that there was any danger of a mutiny and violence breaking out among the crews. It was a smart move on Captain Juan's part. He told the pirates that they had to get to a latitude of at least three degrees to expect any sort of wind, and it wouldn't carry them southwest, only east at this time of year. Admiral Sharp was out of options at this point, so he tacked east-southeast, and then directly south, and then back east for three days, until the current finally carried them into the path of some wind. They'd lost in that time a full ten days, and they would lose more before they were ready to attack. The wind, even now, was sporadic, and they encountered storms every night that blew them off course. Every single day was a struggle to find the wind, and it was agonizingly slow going. Tensions continued to build on board both the Trinity and the Mayflower. During these days, Captain Cook actually rowed his boat over to the Trinity and informed Admiral Sharp that he could no longer command the Mayflower. The men were growing restless, and they had informed him, Captain Cook, that they wouldn't sail under Cook any longer, so he had his closest men with him, and they joined the crew of the Trinity. So Sharp had to, at this point, appoint a new captain for the Mayflower, and he chose a man named John Cox. Basil Ringrose wasn't fond of Captain Cox. He wrote of him, quote, John Cox, an inhabitant of New England, who forced kindred, as we thought, upon Captain Sharp out of old acquaintance only to advance himself. Thus he were made, as it were, vice-admiral to Captain Sharp. End quote. That is to say that the men saw John Cox as a brown-noser, a lickspittle, who used his friendship with Sharp to gain that command. This... They don't mention it in the accounts, but it probably enraged no small number of the pirates who expected to be able to elect their own captains. Nonetheless, John Cox was given command of the Mayflower. And then there were problems with the Spanish prisoners as well. Sharp was giving more and more credence to the words of Captain Juan. He was, at least, leading them into the wind. Peralta, on the other hand, was grating at Sharp more and more. He was constantly ingratiating himself with the men, so Sharp sent Peralta with Captain Cox to the Mayflower to get him and his influence away from the Trinity. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, all. Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Now, 
personally, if I were one of the pirates on board the Trinity, I would be deeply unhappy with Sharp's choices here. See, they all really liked Peralta. That old and stout Spaniard was everything that they respected about the Spanish Navy, and this Captain Juan character was obviously manipulating Sharp. More to the point, Sharp's command had thus far been a total disaster. More and more, the men began to question his fitness for command. He'd been absent at Panama, he'd been absent at Puebla Nueva, and he'd led them literally nowhere. They hadn't so much as seen a prize in weeks, and Sharp had yet to be integral in taking one of any consequence. Dampier and Wafer, at this point, both openly lament their choice to stay with Captain Sharp, and even Ringrose, even he begins to question his decision to stay. It becomes pretty clear that they were planning to abandon the voyage as soon as possible, although they were unable to do so while still deep in Spanish water. It's even possible, although no one wrote it down, that they were planning an outright mutiny with some of the other more disgruntled pirates, to take over the Mayflower and sail her back to the Isthmus, where they could reunite with the Kuna and return home. For the time, though, they stayed their hand. They were, at least now, headed back towards land, but not the Galapagos. They still needed a place to careen their ships. Once again, Captain Juan spoke up. He knew of an island, Isla Gorgona, that would serve their purposes. It was an island large enough to find food and water, but small enough that the Spanish had no colony there. It was close to the mainland, but Spanish ships avoided it due to the ceaseless rains, and it was only about ten leagues away. So, once again, Captain Sharp listened to Captain Juan and set a heading for Gorgona. When they arrived, they beached their vessel and set about preparing her for careening. They unrigged her and they shifted the cargo. They affixed the ropes to the masts. They built a camp and a bunch of cook fires, and their first order of business was to send out hunting parties and water parties. They caught fish and deer and an alligator. One man killed a snake that was 14 inches in circumference and 11 feet long. They were naturally impressed by it, but then they ate it. Another man saw a sloth, which was the first time that most of the men had seen such a creature. Now, William Dampier had seen them before, back at the logwood camps in the Bay of Campeche. He wrote of them then that they were, quote, four-footed, hairy, sad-colored, and that they could be, quote, neither frightened nor pushed to move faster, end quote. This strange creature was a new experience for most of the Englishmen, though. The natives and the Spanish knew of them, of course, but the first English sighting had been only a few decades past, and Dampier was among the first to accurately document the animal. The English were enamored with this slow-moving creature, mostly because they were easy to shoot and then eat. That was the way of discovery for the pirates. They might encounter a new species, marvel at its wonder, Dampier would write it down, and then they would eat it. And this happened a lot, actually, with those early natural scientists. They would describe the look of an animal, the behavioral traits of an animal, and then the flavor of an animal. They shot at whales, too, but their musket shot just bounced right off of them, and they just swam away. Captain Sharp, though, chose to name this island Sharp's Isle, although the name didn't stick. They did find it a good place to hide out, and a great place to reprovision. They thought it so fine, in fact, that this excursion won't be the last time our story of maritime piracy will visit this island. Thirty years from now, when everything has changed for the pirates, one of the sailors on this voyage will return to Gorgona Island. William Dampier will lead another group of sailors, this time privateers, to her shores on an expedition led by none other than an up-and-coming young mariner named Woods Rogers. That's going to be a good story. In the meantime, though, the pirates had to wait several days for the rain to stop long enough for them to remove their sails. Finally, on July 2nd, they were able to heave down the ships and secure them to the nearby trees. During the heaving, the mainmast of the Trinity began to crack, but the carpenters were able to reinforce it, so for the next few days they set to cleaning and scraping the hull as best they could. 
The carpenters replaced and reinforced planks. They replaced a few deck planks above board that were damaged in the fire at Perico, and the men worked in teams, coating the hull with pitch to seal her. All in all, it went well, as far as these things could go, especially for men who were working quickly on a ship that was much larger than they were used to. But among the crew, all wasn't so well. They were fully aware that their window of opportunity was either closing or already fully closed. They sat in councils, without the upper management, debating exactly what to do here. Guayaquil was out. They were too large to be attacked now that they had news of the pirates' presence, as they already certainly did. Unfortunately, the buccaneers didn't know this region well enough to know where would be a suitable location to attack. They were virtually blind. So, once again, they turned to the Spanish captives. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would trust my prisoners in asking which of their countrymen I should attack and rob. On the other hand, if I were one of those prisoners, I don't know that I would have led the pirates to an actually secluded beach to careen the ships. I probably would have led them to a beach frequented by large, well-armed navy ships. But, then again... It did delay the pirates for several more days, and if I were caught in betraying them, they might just slit my throat and be done with me. So, it appears that once again, Captain Juan seems to have played the pirates well. But this time, it wasn't Captain Juan that spoke up. It was that old Moorish sailor. He told them of a place south of Guayaquil that could fulfill all their desires. He said that at this place they would find such a wealth of silver plate and gold pieces that they could double their earnings. At least, more likely, they would triple their earnings. It was the storehouse for all of the gold and silver from the old Incan Empire, Arica. Only once a year the treasure fleet from Lima would make for Arica and pick up the amassed silver and gold and pearls and gemstone. They would then make for Panama, where it would be transported overland. It wasn't the only such city on the coast, but it was the southernmost, and therefore it was the most productive, the closest to the mountains, so the richest and the most remote, the least defended. Of course, the pirates already knew about Arica. That was a famous place. That was where Sir Francis Drake had first made his presence known to the Spanish in the Pacific. He'd come out of the Straits of Magellan in secret until the Golden Hind descended on Arica and took the city for all it was worth. They stole so much silver, so the legend goes, that he'd been forced to dump several tons of it on a nearby island. It was, to pirates, an almost holy place. This Moorish sailor told them that in Arica all their wildest dreams could be made true. They could take the city with ease and they could retire rich men. Some of the pirates, including our trio of educated chroniclers, well, they thought this all sounded too good to be true. However, many of the other pirates had already lost all of their earnings to gambling during their weeks in the doldrums, and they didn't have anything left to show for this voyage. So each and every one of them voted to follow the old Moor's lead and sail for Arica. But Arica was still very far away. From their little island near Guayaquil in modern-day Ecuador, they would have to travel south and east, past Trujillo, past Lima, past the entire modern nation of Peru, to the very northern tip of modern-day Chile. That's 492 leagues, or 1,478 nautical miles. For the rest of the world, that's 2,738 kilometers. And then, once again... The accounts of Ringrose and Sharp get really boring. It's all technical. It's nothing but wind speeds and latitudes and longitudes and place names and descriptions of the islands and sketches of the shoreline and a few notable places. Most interestingly, they do mention a few fortifications and some troop estimates. To modern readers, or at least to me, my eyes just glaze over. For this stuff, I can just look at a map. But... For certain readers back in Jamaica, or among the Lords of Trade, or perhaps the Admiralty, or even the Privy Council, this was exactly what they were looking for. This journey south from Guayaquil took almost a month. About two weeks in, they encountered a pretty terrible storm and they lost sight of the Mayflower. 
Now, they didn't know if they'd merely gotten separated or if the ship had sunk, but there were no signs of a ship that had smashed against the rocks. There was no debris and no foam rising from the depths, so they were hopeful. About two weeks later, they came to an island and spotted a familiar set of sails. The Mayflower was already there. Sea conditions were such that the Trinity couldn't enter the anchorage of the Mayflower until morning, but the Mayflower sent over a ship with a few tortoise and a live goat for the recently arrived men to feast upon. The crewmen who came over from the Mayflower told them that this island was rich in flora and fauna. It had plenty to replenish their stores. They had a bit of news as well. After a bit of exploring and consulting their charts, John Cox had determined that, according to Ringrose, quote, This island received its name from Sir Francis Drake and his famous actions, for here it is reported by tradition that he made the dividend of that quantity of plate distributing it to each man of his company by whole bowls full. The Spaniards affirm to this day that he took at that time twelve score tons of plate and sixteen bowls of coined money a man, insomuch that they were forced to heave much of it overboard because his ship could not carry it all. Hence was this island called by the Spaniards themselves the Isle of Plate, and by us Drake's Island. End quote. This was the very same island that Francis Drake had come to after taking Eureka. The pirates were, almost intentionally now, walking in Drake's footsteps, only they were walking backwards. Again, Sharp was fully aware of this. He intended to see his name writ large in the annals of English heroes. He wanted to be placed next to names like Sir Francis Drake and Sir Henry Morgan. After all, He'd allied with the Indians, as Drake had. He'd taken Panama, as Morgan had. And now he sailed with impunity down the coast of South America. This was far from the last similarity that this voyage would see to Drake and Morgan either. It's clear from the writings of Sharp, which were intended for the grandees back in Whitehall, that he was arguing his case to be named Sir Bartholomew Sharp and placed in league with his heroes. Of course, if that were to be his end, he would be a more famous man today. No, you see, both Drake and Morgan had letters of Mark in their possession. They were, in fact, acting as privateers. There was some questionable legality, and they still had to walk a tight political line not to end up hanging from London's gallows, but Bartholomew Sharp had no letter of Mark. He wasn't even arguably a privateer. He was just a pirate. And he was about to prove it. I'd like to read a bit here from Captain Sharp's journal. I think it illustrates what about the past month or so and the following few days are like, what real life on board a pirate ship was like for many of the men. Quote, 17, Tuesday. This day we set sail from Drake's Isle, the wind at south-southwest, fair weather. This lies in one degree, twenty-five minutes south latitude. 18. Wednesday. We got a little to windwards this twenty-four hours by reason of a leeward current wind at south and southwest. 19. Thursday. This twenty-four hours we stood on and offshore, but got little to windward. Cloudy weather, wind south and southwest. 20. Friday. We kept plying along shore, but a strong leeward current. Wind at south, small gales. 21. Saturday. This 24 hours we plied along shore. Wind south to southwest. Cloudy weather. 22. Sunday. This 24 hours we find the current is abated, and the wind has this night favored us, that we lay well along shore. The wind at east-southeast. Cloudy weather. 23. Monday. This 24 hours we had the wind at west-southwest. Good weather. We made Point St. Helena. 24. Tuesday. This 24 hours we met with a strong current, which sets to the southward. End quote. That's a week in the life of these pirates. A week where nothing at all happened. Well, almost nothing. 
On Monday, they spied something in the distance, which they thought to be a Spanish bark, so Admiral Sharp, who had yet to even take a single fishing boat or Indian canoe, ordered the men to put to sea in their canoes and to overtake the ship. They were to row out, capture her, and bring her back whatever the cost. He watched them row out intently. But then they just started rowing back. Empty-handed, they hadn't even reached the ship. It turns out it was just a big log floating out there. But then, after that week was completed, on Wednesday the 24th of August, 1680, something actually did happen. To continue with Sharp's account, quote, 25, Wednesday. On Tuesday night, about 9 o'clock, we stood to the westward and saw a sail. The Trinity then gave chase and, in a short time, came up with her. She was a small man of war, fitted out of Guayaquil by a parcel of merry blades, gentlemen who, drinking in a tavern, made a vow to come with that vessel and thirty men and take us. But we made them repent their undertaking. End quote. That smaller vessel caught the wind and tried to escape the Trinity, but the Trinity kept on her. Throughout the night the Trinity gave chase, and then both vessels doused their lanterns. The Spanish man-of-war tried to use the dark and the gloom to lose the Trinity, but the pirates hadn't taken a prize in two months now. Many of the men were broke, and all of them were hungry for a fight. So come dawn, it became clear that the Trinity was going to overtake the man-of-war. First, Admiral Sharp had Ringrose call out to the Spanish man-of-war. He ordered her to strike the topsails. The Spanish returned that they would rather make the pirates lower theirs. It was a challenge of battle, and the pirates happily obliged. They opened up with chain shot and a bit of musket fire. They aimed at the masts and the rigging and the sails. They wanted at first to disable the ship, but not damage her hull or to kill too many of the men right out. The Spanish responded, though, with a volley of small arms fire. Ringrose names them harquebuses, but we would probably call the guns that they used swivel guns today. The pirates then reloaded and returned fire. The gunners were preparing a volley of large shot, but it wasn't time for that quite yet. They had a full complement of guns. They had shot and powder from three Spanish warships. They had the advantage of height, and they had the advantage of numbers. The pirates could, for the time being, afford to be patient. For half an hour, the ships danced around one another, trying to find a favorable position for battle. The pirates traded fire with the Spanish, and the Spanish returned, but then an English musketeer hit the helmsman of the Spanish man-of-war. That left their ship completely unable to maneuver, and they concentrated fire on the helm. The Spanish needed to retake the helm to fight it all, so they redoubled their fire on the Trinity, but now the pirates were able to stay safely behind cover. That allowed the gunners to focus grape-shot at the man-of-war's sails. So the Spanish soon called out for quarter. The English granted it. They boarded the vessel, and they took stock of the prisoners. The crew proper was small, only about a dozen men, but there were at least 25 young men from Old Spain on board. Those were those merry blades of whom Sharp had spoken. Those are men that had traveled to the New World just in time to hear of the English depredations in their territory. Back in Peru, over several rounds of drinks, they'd vowed to accompany this ship out to sea to defeat these corsairs. It was brave, and to be fair, they'd made a fight out of it, but it was foolhardy nonetheless. The English had more men, they had more guns, they had more ships, and what amounted to a third-rate ship of the line, a real world-class warship, against what was basically a smallish galleon. So the captain of the man-of-war was brought before Admiral Sharp. He was a sensible man, probably unlike those Spanish rogues, and he spoke to Sharp as an equal. His words went out to the assembled men as much for his own crew's ears as the pirates. Quote, Gentlemen, I am now your prisoner at war by the overruling providence of fortune. Moreover, I am very well satisfied that no money whatsoever can procure my ransom, at least for the present, at your hands. Hence I am persuaded it is not my interest to tell you a lie, which, if I do, I desire you to punish me as severely as you should think fit. End quote. And he gave them everything they wanted. 
Ringrose records everything he said diligently, but it amounts to this. His was one of many, maybe as many as dozens, of warships scouting the coast of Peru for pirates. Guayaquil was reinforced with hundreds of men and fortifications overlooking every approach to the city, either by land or sea. Every town, every village, every uninhabited cape and peninsula had a watch set that was prepared to carry word to the nearest city. Every city on the coast with a port of any size had at least a few galleons in the harbor, fully armed and manned with soldiers. But Lima was worse. There was an armada at Lima, awaiting word of the pirates. When that word arrived, that fleet was to sail out in force and engage them. If possible, they were to capture the pirates, but if necessary, they would kill. At the docks of Lima, carpenters had been working around the clock to erect brand new gallows, especially for Admiral Sharp and his men. It was a party of Indians at Point St. Helena who had recognized the Trinity. Everyone in that region of the Southern Ocean knew the Trinity, even after the pirates' modifications. She was a well-known vessel. Those Indians had brought word to the local garrison at Point St. Helena, and then he had sent out messengers to Eureka, hence why this ship had been sent out to find the pirates. And by this time, word had surely already reached the Viceroy at Lima, and a fleet of warships was likely on their way to capture the pirates as they spoke. That Spanish captain didn't offer these words in challenge. It wasn't a threat. It was merely a statement of the resources and the readiness of his people. It was daunting news to be sure, but it was still helpful to the pirates. They knew now that word had spread. They knew now that the Spanish knew where they were. But they knew also what they were up against. So Sharp had the crew of that Spanish vessel brought aboard the Trinity and put under guard. They searched the man-of-war and found some 3,276 pieces of eight. There was little else of value aside from some provisions, so they burned the ship and left her to sink. The following day, Sharp set out to question the prisoners. The captain had already given him everything he could have needed, but Sharp wanted to corroborate that story. His questioning was brutal. Perhaps it wasn't the sort of torture employed by, say, the Spanish Inquisition, or by Francois Lolonnais, or even Morgan at his worst, but he was liberal with both the lash and the blade. This was deeply disturbing to some of the men. They were there to make money, but not by torture. Battle was one thing, it was even at times honorable, but to torture prisoners who had already willfully surrendered was something else. A Spanish friar objected to their treatment, and Sharp had him brought on deck. He intended to make an example of him. It was by now quite clear that Sharp's most loyal men would defend his actions, no matter how vile they were. They were prepared, if need be, to use violence, and... There were far more of those men than there were those that now opposed Sharp. Ringrose writes, quote, We also punished a friar who was chaplain to the bark aforementioned, shot him upon the deck, casting him overboard before he was dead. Such cruelties, though I abhorred very much in my heart, yet here I was forced to hold my tongue and contradict them not, as having not authority to oversway them. End quote. Basil Ringrose was afraid of the men who were loyal to Sharp and of Sharp himself. William Dampier and Lionel Wafer were among that group. A very few other pirates were with them, and they realized that now they were hostage to the whims of Captain Bartholomew Sharp as surely as were his Spanish prisoners. Before we go, I have a couple of last thoughts to mention. The events we covered in today's show were frustrating for the pirates, but it was very much a part of the pirates' experience. In most cases, we only get accounts of pirates from official sources, from letters between governors, but that typically only gives us the high points. That shows us they attacked a ship here, they were marooned there, they regained command and attacked this city, 
They were captured, they were tried in London, and they were hung on X day. Here, we get an account from the pirates themselves, and I wanted to give you a taste of the reality of it, of just how boring and slow much of piracy could actually be. There's also something that I would like to note about nomenclature here. We're using the words pirate and buccaneer pretty interchangeably, and the contemporary writers and even modern historians do so as well, but the word buccaneer is pretty quickly growing anachronistic. The French hunters of Hispaniola of that middle 17th century period are now a concept completely of the past. By 1670, when Morgan attacked Panama, the word buccaneer was being used as no more than sort of a a polite idiom for out-and-out pirates. This is a symptom from the era of privateers, when gentlemen of polite society assumed that on some level, all of these sea rovers had at least a hint of legitimacy. Spanish governors, for example, might call them pirates, but it was... It wasn't a title. It was really just an accusation of a crime. You know, that man is a murderer. Those men are pirates. It was a declaration of their actions. But starting with this voyage, around 1680, it was becoming clear that to call them pirates meant something else, something more. It, it wasn't just a crime that they were guilty of. It was, it was a lifestyle. Piracy was in the West Indies at least, and soon even in the East Indies, to be a pirate meant that you were a member of a a sort of societal class, all its own. Next time, we're going to continue with Captain Sharp and the Pacific Adventure. We're going to start picking up the pace pretty quickly here, as there is a lot more just sailing around to come, and I don't want to waste any more of your time with that. Besides, while this voyage was in its latter half, big things were happening back in the Caribbean, and back in Europe, there was looming the threat of dynastic upheaval, and religious turmoil, and war. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank also everyone who has supported the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon, or by giving us a mention on social media, or a review on iTunes. Without all of you, I could not continue to do this show. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out, I suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight